You are listening to an audio broadcast from the Charlottesville Vineyard Christian Church. So the kingdom of God is like a home being restored. Um, and if you think about it, I've, you know, I've been sort of keeping this, this in, in my mind for, for several months now. And so, you know, as I'm flipping through channels on TV, you'll see those, those, um, uh, those TV shows that are like, you know, this old home or whatever it may be. And they're actually trying to restore an old home. And I compare this to, say, remodeling or, um, or rehabbing or renovating a home. You know, when, when Megan and I moved into our home about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, um, we tore down a wall downstairs. We, we tore out the cabinetry, um, replaced much of the kitchen, um, did a bunch of things that I would consider not um, restoration work. Uh, it was really just rehabbing certain areas of our home. And, um, and that was fairly, I mean, it was hard work, but it was relatively easy in that, you know, we didn't have to, um, to get too, too detailed with things. We could just sort of tear things up and not worry about, uh, you know, the consequence. Um, you know, Tim was there for some of that and I know some, some others were, were there to help out. Um, but yeah, that was, that was restor- that was re- rehabbing work, you know, it was just tearing things down, using a massive crowbar. Um, I know Justin let me use some of his, um, his saws, and I just, you know, saw walls in half, that sort of thing. It was great. It was lots of fun. Um, but, again, that was, that was a rehab project. Um, you know, as I've, as, again, as I've been paying attention to this idea of, of restoration, you see these shows on TV, this, this old home or whatever it may be, and you see these people doing restoration work, which seems a heck of a lot more difficult than, than rehabbing. Um, with restoration work, they, they spend a lot of time doing research. Um, you know, I, I work at UVA, and I think some of you have ties or links to, to UVA here, I'm sure. Anybody have any links to UVA, a few of you? Um, you? We're probably all well aware, even if we don't have links to UVA, that it's a historic university. There's a lot of historic buildings. And, um, you know, one one day I was in one of our locations uh, near the the West Lawn, if anybody's familiar with the lawn there. Um, and uh, there, was a, there was a guy climbing up into the attic of this, this building, and um, he ended up sort of dropping down into the rafters and was, like, using his flashlight checking things out. Like, what is this guy doing? So I was asking him questions. And he was taking a look at some of the old wallpaper that was originally in this building. And they had dropped a ceiling down below the, the rafter level uh, many years later. Um, and so he was really excited because this space that had gone unused up in the attic for uh, decades um, was now a place where he could go in and explore um, oh, I get to use this. Great. Where he could go in and explore, um, you know, uh, what it was, what it looked like originally, the original wallpaper, the original crown molding. So he was just all geeked out about this. Um, and, you know, you see projects happening at, at UVA quite often where they're really trying to go back and restore an old building. Um, they're trying to, to get back to the original design. And, um, you know, this, again, this happens all over the place when people are, are working on old homes, old Victorian homes, or whatever it may be, they want to restore its character to the, to the old way, which, again, involves a lot of research. You have to figure out, okay, how was it originally designed? Um, we want it to look just like that. We want to use similar materials. Uh, we want to be able to cut it the same way. Um, a lot of the tools we use today don't do exactly the same thing they would have done back then, so you have to kind of break out the old hand tools. Um, it, it takes a lot of, of hard and difficult work. Um, and I have a couple pictures that... Hopefully this does. Yeah. There's um, this home I found online. 
Uh, can you see that? Lighting's not great, but um, you can see over on the left here, there's this, um, this wall that has this really beautiful wood, uh, I don't know, I guess a wooden wall. I don't know what you call that, but just a wood wall um, with woodwork. And you see over on the right-hand side this room that was, I, I guess, an entryway for this old home. And um, this family decided they wanted to restore this thing back to its original. Thank you. That's great. Uh, they wanted to restore it back to its original. And so here, you know, months and months later, after a lot of work, um, you can see now it's still a work in progress, but you can see how they literally took off all that paint on the left-hand side and refinished that wood to its original luster. And uh, you can see how beautiful that wood is, all the, the grain, and um, it just looks gorgeous. Now on the right-hand side, where that, that wall was just torn apart, now they've restored it to um, the way it was intended to be with those really cool little... I don't know if those are brass handles or whatever on the doors, but just neat stuff that they've been doing to this house to really bring it back to what it was uh, originally intended to be back in the, I guess, maybe late 1800s. Uh, but again, a much different project than trying to remodel a home where you might just say, let's just start from scratch. Let's buy some Ikea stuff like we did, and let's just throw it in there. Um, a very, very different project. And the reason why I want to start out with this uh, is because I think the, the kingdom of heaven or uh, God's relationship to his creation and to humanity specifically is a lot like a restoration project. It's a lot like um, going into an old home and trying to restore it to its original intent. Um, so today, I'm going to be focusing on um, a few things. Thank you, Lynn. That was great. Um, we're going to, we're, we're entering into a four-part series. And uh, this, this series is called um, Restoration People. And today I'm going to focus on the story of God and his people. So that relationship, that dynamic between God and his people, and specifically on the story um, as it relates to this idea of God restoring creation. Um, so we're going to go through the history of Scripture. So buckle in, relax. Make sure, make sure you're comfortable because I'm going to be retelling stories that, that you've already heard many times before. Some of you may not. Um, but we're going to look at this, this, this narrative of Scripture in, um, in a, a, a sort of a restoration motif perspective. All right? Um, and the series in general, as I mentioned, is called Restoration People. So this is about the kind of church that we want to work towards. Um, this is about uh, the, being the people that pick up on the work of restoration and move it forward. So we're going to, again, spend some time talking about that story, what that story is today, what's led up to today. And then uh, the next few weeks, we're going to focus on – bye-bye. Uh, we're going to focus on, uh, at the individual level, what it means to be restored to God's image at the community level. So restoring this idea of being the bride or the body of Christ – and then at the world level, doing the work, getting our hands dirty and doing the work of, of restoring God's creation as a whole. Um, so that's going to be the basics of, of this, this series. Um, so let's, let's just dig right into the, the story of God and his people. Um, and I've got a little uh, picture, I guess a little chart here, of, um, of the, the major points in history that I wanted to cover. So number one, you start out with, uh, with creation. And Genesis 1, uh, Jamie told me that if I needed to cough, I should just pull the mic away from my face. Um, 
So in the beginning, and if you want to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put a lot of the scripture up here on the screen. Um, so if you want to, if you have a Bible with you, you're, you're welcome to, to sort of join me as I journey through the Old Testament and New. Um, we should have some Bibles handy. I think, I don't think there's any right here, but there might be some out at the welcome tables. If anybody wants one, you're welcome to have that, take it with you. Um, it might be helpful to follow through. Um, but if you look at Genesis 1, that's where we find the, the initial story of creation. And there's a couple of accounts. But uh, a couple of key points I want to hit on here is as you look at this, this creation story, you'll see that God calls his creation good. At the very end of, of, of the work that he's done, um, he calls his creation good. He says, this is good. Um, everything, as you look at the story, everything is in perfect balance. Everything is, is in perfect order. This, um, the relationship between God and humanity at this point is, is marked by um, proximity, it's marked by intimacy, it's marked by trust, and, uh, and love and purity. And, um, you know, the relationship, as I say, between God and humanity is, is at its best at this point when God creates um, uh, all of creation, including humanity. Um, and humanity's charge at this point uh, essentially is two things. It's to, to multiply and then to rule over God's creation, to rule over the earth. And we know that from, from the, um, the Genesis account that, that God is also present. He wanders around in the, in the, the, the Garden of Eden, um, and he talks face-to-face with, with Adam and Eve. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's really just an amazing picture of, of God interacting with his creation at, at such a personal and intimate level. So you have that at the very beginning, the creation, the whole creation narrative. And, and then the next major step in, uh, in the history of God and his people is the fall of humanity. And you can find that whole story in, in Genesis 3. Um, the, the big, one of the key things here, one of the key phrases here is uh, you'll be like God. This is what uh, the serpent, who um, who tricks Eve into eating the fruit, says to her, says, you will be like God. Uh, you'll have all knowledge of good and evil, just like God. So you'll essentially be just like him, um, which in many ways taps into um, this, this desire that she has and the desire that Adam has to uh, eliminate any sort of dependency on God. It makes them independent of God. They no longer have to lean on him. Um, so now they're, by eating this fruit and, and having that knowledge and, and being independent of God, um, they've now really sort of separated themselves from God. And that's, that's essentially what happens uh, in the fall of humanity. Um, and, and oftentimes we refer to that, that uh, concept of the separation between humanity and God as, as the plight of sin, something that Bill mentioned in his uh, communion. Um, and humanity's plight. So here we get into the, the fall of man, uh, the fall of humanity. And humanity's plight is, is that, they, that there are now going to be weeds, which, you know, I think mosquitoes go in with that group too, the weeds and mosquitoes in terms of things that are problematic for, uh, for mankind in general. Um, it's going to be hard work. You're just going to have to work your tail off. Um, there's going to be death. Uh, there's going to be pain in childbirth. And there's this interesting now a new hierarchy, it seems, between man and woman. And there's also shame. We know that um, Adam and Eve both felt ashamed of themselves when they realized that they were naked. So there's these 
these new elements that are introduced into the relationship between God and humanity and uh, between humans themselves. And God's relationship to humanity in, in this, this fall of humanity in, in Genesis 3 um, moves away from that image of purity and trust and intimacy and proximity to distance, to um, humanity's tendency to eschew God, to, to put him aside, uh, try to be independent of him. And, um, and we also see God in this, in this uh, narrative um, begin his, his work of restoring humanity back to himself. One of the first things that happens before God even banishes Adam and Eve from the garden is he provides them clothes, right? Anybody remember that story? So he provides them clothes, and what does that do? That hides their shame. It, it, it restores, in some ways, it restores their dignity, right? So what God, the very first act of God, after just before um, sending them off into uh, outside of the Garden of Eden, into the land, is, is to try to restore some sense of dignity for them by giving them clothing. You know, they just had some fig leaves, and that's where you get all those pictures, right? Um, so they just had some fig leaves, and God tries to restore some of their dignity, which is, again, the first act, I think, of, of restoration we see in, um, in the narrative of God and his people. So that's, that's um, you know, the kind of the summary of the fall of humanity. Uh, the next step then would be, and there's a bunch of stuff that I'm going to be skipping over here. Just, uh, you could probably understand the, the, the Bible is a pretty thick book if you haven't, if you haven't seen it before. Um, and uh, Scott, Scott has one. Can you just hold that up? Look, see how thick that is. That's got to be eight, nine hundred pages. So I'm not going to just. I'm not. I'm going to skip over big, 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 big chunks of scripture. Um, but Genesis is really such a, a great place to find ourselves. Um, so the next section that I want to go through is is really Genesis 12. It's just uh, several chapters later when God makes His covenant with Abraham. And I think I even have this scripture. Uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Um, so here, let me just flip forward to it so I can read looking forward. This is tricky, holding the mic and trying to read and change pages. Almost there. 12, 1 to 3. Okay, here we go. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here's the sort of summarized version of the the covenant that God makes between himself and and uh, and Abraham, and what we see here is this idea of God bestowing a great blessing on Abraham and all of his descendants. Um, he he tells Abraham that this this great nation will 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 rise up, um, uh, his offspring, his descendants will rise up and become a great nation. Um, they will. Uh, they'll be like the uh, the sand of the, uh, the 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 grains of the sand on the on the shores of the sea, basically. Uh, numerous, just countless number of descendants, um, and uh, again, they'll be this great nation, 
and they'll essentially be his image bearers. You see in this, this, this scripture, this passage, um, where he says, you'll be a blessing to all nations, right? So what we see in, in the, the, the story here is, and, I, and I, again, I skipped over the whole story of Noah and uh, a number of things that led up to Abraham. Um, we see here is, is God sort of strategically focusing his efforts on restoring creation um, to, uh, uh, sorry, focusing his efforts on one particular group of people. Um, and again, this is kind of a strategic move if you think about it. Uh, if God wants to restore all of creation, he's primarily working through humanity, it makes sense that he would pick a group, uh, a single group to sort of start with, right? And as that group grows and expands and becomes a great nation, blessed by God in good relationship with him, um, they would be a blessing, a light to all other nations. Um, the idea, the original idea was never that uh, that they would be um, uh, this, this, uh, awful, uh, mean, cruel empire that would, uh, you know, take over the world. That wasn't necessarily the plan. The plan was that they would grow up, they would, they would reflect God's image to the world, and people would be so delighted by having them as neighbors that, that they themselves would, would be blessed and would want to follow after this God. And that's, that's the idea that we see when, when God, um, uh, uh creates this, this covenant, uh, with Abraham. And so this is a really important, um, a really, really essential part of our history uh, as Christians, as those who are following after God. Uh, it's, it's really, really vital that, that we understand some of these basic stories, you know, where, where our background comes from. Um, we see in this story of God and Abraham uh, a desire to restore creation and a desire to do that through a chosen people. Um, and again, not at the exclusion of others, but for the benefit, for the blessing of others. Um, the next step that we see, then uh, we move into, there we go, um, exile. And uh, I sort of summarize here. I've got exile in Egypt and in Babylon. And I know that, that uh, again, this is a huge, huge span of time. But what we have is the initial exile in Egypt and you can find that story in Exodus 1, 8 to 14. This is where Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh takes over who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know the Israelites, and decides that uh, he is going to oppress the Israelites. And so they become uh, a people in exile, really, in Egypt. And, um, and then we, you know, we move forward in time to the Exodus. But let me just spend a little bit of time in exile. Um, and I'll just say that there is also the exile that we look at with, with Babylon, with the Persians, with the Assyrians, with uh, Alexander, with the Romans. Uh, if you know some of the history of, of Israel and the Middle East, you know that, um, gosh, you know, there was a period of time after they, they came out of Egypt um, where things were going really well for them. They were a, a nation state in and of themselves, but then they, uh, they were taken over and spent quite a many years in fact, it wasn't until, I guess, 1940, what was it, 47? 47, 48, that Israel was once again its own nation state, so to speak, um, from the time of the Babylonian Empire. Now, there was a, no, I won't even get into that. Um, but nonetheless, so uh, we have these exiles, these periods of exile in Egypt, and we have this exile even in their own land under other empires. 
Um, and during this time, these, these images of exile in Egypt and, and under the Babylonians and so forth, um, you have this nation that's in trouble. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, the key themes here is that when you think about this idea of God restoring his creation through a nation, through a people, um, that whole plan is kind of thrown into, I don't know, thrown into difficulty, basically. Um, it's struggling at this point when, when they're in exile. Um, we know that once they return from exile, there's a lot of ups and downs. Uh, you know, if you read through um, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, Judges, those books in the Old Testament, there's all these ups and downs where the people return to God, and then they, and then they fall away from him, and they start following other idols and other gods and so forth. And there's this whole period of, of sort of back and forth. Um, during this time, there's many, many prophetic writings. So I'm talking during the more of the Babylonian and Assyrian and Persian captivity. There's a lot of prophetic writings. So as you look at books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, the minor prophets, um, these are uh, mainly written during that time period, during the captivity time period. And uh, they provide us lots of pictures of God intending to restore his creation, restore his people, right? Um, so the plan can kind of get back on track. And so we see um, scriptures, and I have some of these, um, uh, from Isaiah, again, from Isaiah, Ezekiel. I've got primarily Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, but these pictures of, pictures of the future, when Israel has, has blessed all nations and the world and humanity is restored to God, it's... it's, it's essentially the picture of this restored home, right? It's the, the picture of what the home would look like if it was finally restored. And uh, so let me just read through some of these. Isaiah 48, and if you want to follow along again, you're, you're more than welcome. <clears throat> We're going to spend most of our time here in Isaiah. Some great stuff in Isaiah. Been sick for about two weeks, and um, I'm better, but just hanging on, you know? Okay, Isaiah 48, 17 to 19. We'll start there. Um, I'm just going to give you little snippets here, but this is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands. Your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be cut off nor destroyed from before me. So this, is, this here is, is, again, during these really difficult times, God is reminding, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Are you, are you sick? No? Oh, okay. Oh, thank you. That's great. We're very friendly here, the vineyard. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's awesome. Oh, so refreshing. People listening to the podcast are going to be like, what is going on? Hi, people in the podcast. Um, okay. So this in Isaiah 48 is is uh, a, just a reminder to people that, and God does this throughout the, the prophetic writings. I'm going to remind you of my covenant with you. I'm going to remind you of what I promised Abraham. You see that reference to the, the grains of sand, the, the numberless descendants of Abraham, this nation, right? 
uh, move forward to Isaiah 49.6. Just one chapter. Oh, look, I don't have to change pages. Uh, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant. And now he's talking to Israel. To restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a great a, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So again, reminding of the covenant and uh, specifically pointing out that, hey, you're not going to just um, have this blessing all to yourself. When this day comes, when the day of the Lord comes, I will not only restore Israel, but I will be restoring all people, all of humanity to myself, all the Gentiles. So again, you have this, this difference between Jew and Gentile. There's really only two groups. That's all there is in the world, Jew and Gentile, right? At least um, from that perspective. Let me move uh, forward to Ezekiel 36. Place markers would have helped. 33 through 36. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. So on the day that I cleanse you from all your sins. So this, again, is a reference to the day that Israel is restored to God. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like a garden of Eden. So again, the reference to the garden, that reference to the original intent, right? The garden in many ways is symbolic of 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 this perfect relationship between God and his people. And so when you see that reference in the prophetic writings, he's, he's referencing that kind of relationship, that dynamic between him and his creation. This land was laid waste and become like the Garden of Eden. Eden. The cities that were lying in ruin, ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now, now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed. And I have replanted what was des- desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. So again, uh, this picture of, of rebuilding, um, the nations around them observing what's happened. Uh, you see this again through all, many, many of the, the Old Testament writings, uh, references to other nations, other peoples will see, they'll observe what I've done with you, and they will know that I'm the Lord, um, which means they'll worship me. They will come to me. You know, if you know, if you're, an, if you're a Philistine or you're a, an Ammonite or whatever you may be, uh, one of those nations around Israel, and, uh, and you see the, the, the countless blessings that God lays on his people <clears throat> and how, uh, how they flourish under his rule, and, and you're sort of struggling with drought or your king is a despot and mean and cruel, your tendency is going to want to be, hey, I kind of like that God over there, right? I mean, you can see how he flourishes his people. So um, we see that reference over and over again in the Old Testament. The, the final uh, scripture that I want to look at in this these prophetic years is Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. Yeah, this is a little bit of a longer one, so I need to take a break or two here. Um, 
So beginning at verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor on the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now this is very much a, a, a messianic prophetic <clears throat> writing. This is referring to God's anointed, his chosen one. Um, before uh, anybody would have known who Jesus was, uh, these were, were words that were spoken in expectation for the coming Messiah. <clears throat> and here's, here he goes on to describe what, what it'll be like, what the world will be like when, when finally all things are restored. Um, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. Half and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. Now, anybody here who's had children, <clears throat> and even those who have not, know that you don't put your child next to a cobra's nest, right? I mean, okay, granted, we don't have very many cobra's nests here in Virginia, but if there were rattlesnakes, you wouldn't just sort of set your child next to a venomous, viperous, that's not even a word, but I made it up, snake hole, right? You just don't do that, right? So clearly what we're seeing here is is not just a, a, a reckless um, situation or a reckless zoo with children running loose. Um, this is this is a picture of, of peace and tranquility, of balance and and in uh, relationship between humanity and the rest of God's creation. Um, so they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day. I'm sorry, I moved ahead, didn't I? Let's just let's just leave that. Um, so this again, this picture of of, of Messiah and uh, the restoration of of everything to perfection, and you you can <clears throat> you can see in here again references back to the Garden of Eden. We know that that um, Adam and Eve walked freely in the garden with with all these what we would consider today dangerous animals. Um, and it wasn't like what you see on, say, the Jay Leno show or Letterman when they bring the animals in and it's kind of fun and exciting. I mean, these are these are dangerous animals that, that could strike and kill at any moment. Um, but Adam and Eve are, are living symbiotically, very, very naturally with these with these animals. And and again, the, the picture that's painted of the future. So, again, picking up on that analogy of, you know, we have the old home. It uh, got dilapidated. And now we're, we're, we're redrawing the schematics for the new home. And, and this is what it looks like. This is, this is what it looks like. The, the lion, the lamb sleep together. All these, these animals with, with little children are together. 
uh, in peace. <clears throat> so that's a lot of what we see in terms of, of what's written and what's spoken of about the future, about the restoration of God and his people um, during this time of, of exile. Again, whether that be exile um, in Egypt or exile with, with the Babylonian, Assyrian, Persian, and whatever you name the empire. Um, the next stage then would be uh, the exodus, of course. And again, I'm kind of bouncing back and forth here a little bit, but in the exodus story, we have um, God sees the pain of his people, and this is primarily told in Exodus 5 through 14, but, but really pretty much the whole book of Exodus. Um, God sees the pain and hears the cries of his people. He, he decides that he wants to rescue them, and he's going to restore them as a nation. Uh, again, what he's doing here is he's resuscitating his plan for his chosen nation. Things have gone off track, and he's trying to get them back on track. So he uses Moses and, uh, <clears throat> and Aaron to, uh, to restore his people to himself and, uh, and to get them back on track. Um, it seems like for a while things do get on track. Uh, you probably um, have heard some of the stories or read some of the stories through the judges. Um, some, of, some things do go really well during those times. Um, even after the people call for a king, you have Saul initially. That doesn't go so well, but then David takes over, and David has a son named Solomon. Um, from a, a woman that he committed adultery with. And um, seems like even though there is a, a fair amount of sin during those years, that things are kind of back on track, you know, if you look at the, the Davidic kingdom. But then things go off the tr- off the wheels, or the wheels go off the track again, right? And and that, again, is where we've been spending our time here during, in Isaiah and Ezekiel is when things are off track. Um, and they never quite seem to get back on track. Uh there's never really a period in, in history, uh, if you've read any of the apocalyptic literature, there's the Maccabean Revolt, which isn't in, in the, the Bible as we know it today, um, but this is a revolt of, of a bunch of Israelites as they try to um, get rid of the, uh, the Persians at that point in time, or I'm sorry, the Seleucid Empire, and that doesn't go very well. It just doesn't seem like the whole of Israel is really behind the Maccabean um, folks anyway. So again, nothing really ever seems to get back on this track of God restoring his people and, and them being a blessing to all nations. So the next thing that we see in, in history of God and his people, then of course, is Jesus. And there's no particular scripture here. I just re- mentioned the gospel. So if you want to just real quickly read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I'll give you a minute and then we'll all be sort of back on the same page. <laughs> um, and what we see with Jesus then is the, the, uh, the real and final return from exile for God's people. And it's not the physical return as, as would have been expected. What would have been expected is that, okay, Roman rule would be, uh, they'd be kicked out and we'd have our own nation state again. The temple would be restored. God would once again be in the Holy of Holies and uh, we would uh, we'd be our own nation state, you know, independent of, of all others and um, have this amazing relationship with God. Well, um, what we have is is Jesus does restore uh, God's people to God, but in a very different way than than many would have expected. He he um, he restores in the way of forgiveness of sins, which is really the 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 reason for separation in the first place. If you look at all the stories of Israel, those those years of up and down, 
Um, in the down periods, there's there's a lot of sin that led to the down periods where they've they've started worshiping other idols and so forth. And what we have is is this great hope and expectation before the Messiah comes of hey, we really what we really need is to be restored to God. And in order to do so, we need to be forgiven of these sins. We need to have that that slate wiped clean, so to speak. And so Jesus comes and forgives sins, right? We, that's a, a sort of basic tenet of the Christian faith. Um, in addition, uh, oh, and one thing I thought just was kind of interesting about that is Jesus comes to forgive sins, right? Um, which is the original reason for the separation between God and his people, this off-the-track sort of thing. The same exact thing that led to the initial separation at the fall, right? So we see some th- some themes starting to replay themselves, and that's something you'll see throughout the scriptures: is these themes of of exile and exodus, of of fall and restored, all sort of playing over and over and over again, and many of it culminating in life and and death and and resurrection of Jesus. How are we doing? Everybody doing all right? I told you this was a heavy one, didn't I tell you that? Okay. So, what's that? Dense, dense. There we go. <clears throat> so, um, we have the forgiveness of sins with Jesus. We have God's presence restored with his people. So, that was something that was missing, right? And you look at the garden, God's proximity to his people is very close. He's right there with Adam and Eve. And then there's that separation as, as humanity falls. And for centuries and centuries, even millennia, uh, humanity is separated from God in many ways. And you just have, for instance, like the Holy of Holies where God appears or the tabernacle. Now with Jesus, God's presence is restored on his creation. He is once again present on earth. And um, again, this is a lot like pre-fall. This is a lot like creation to fall. Uh, another thing is that the enemy of God's people is defeated. So I mentioned before uh, People were expecting the enemy in that case, in that time, it would have been Rome, but maybe before that was the Persians, whoever it may have been. They were expecting that enemy to be defeated in order for God to restore this nation. But what happens is Jesus actually defeats another enemy, an unseen enemy, the, the, Satan or the devil. And uh, this, is, this is a primary work of Jesus in his time on earth. Um, so we see the people, the enemy of the people of God defeated. Um, just like the serpent was was sort of knocked down off his feet, so to speak, um, uh, during the fall narrative, right? So again, all this sort of circles back. Um, this uh, what we see also with Jesus is a renewed work of restoring creation. So he picks back up, he gets Israel back on track, right? He gets the people of God back on track. He overcomes the the curse. Now, one of the primary signs of the curse from the fall was that humanity would now experience death, right? Uh, that's one of the first things that, that, is, that is said is, is in the curse that you will now die. It just doesn't sound very great. But we all know that we've all had friends, we've all had family, we've all had relatives, we've neighbors, whatever it may be, that have, that have passed on. And that's one of the predominant signs of, of us being part of a fallen creation is that there is death. But what Jesus does... In his resurrection, as he defeats death, a huge, huge symbolic act of God working to reverse the effects of the fall of humanity. Right? I mean, it's 
bam, smack right there in our forehead. It couldn't get more clear than that. So Jesus working to restore creation. He, <clears throat> this idea of a blessing of forgiveness and proximity then begin to spread beyond the Jewish nation. And you read uh, the Acts of the Apostles and, and, and beyond that, uh, many of the letters of the New Testament, you see that, that this message of, of God's love and intimacy um, and uh, blessing for people is spread beyond just the Jewish nation now. Um, how many people in here are Jewish? There's a couple. There's a couple of us. Yeah. <clears throat> but the rest of us who didn't raise our hands, we're not Jewish, right? We're, we're, we're considered Gentiles. And we're here. We, we, we worship God this morning when we were, when we were singing worship, right? Uh, that's a clear sign that what Jesus did was to spread this blessing beyond the Jewish nation to, 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 to Gentiles, which is, again, part of that promise of Abraham. Um, and what we also see is, is uh, Jesus reestablishing the rule of God. Uh, and we call this the kingdom of God, right? The rule or the reign of God is reestablished with, with uh, Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Okay, so that's, that's huge. That's massive. The, the next step, then, is the church. Um, and this is not necessarily a point in time, but subsequent to the death and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, um, we have. And if you have any questions about some of these words I'm using, please just come grab me afterwards. I, I'd be glad to explain some of them to you. Um, but now we have the church. And you see the story of the church, again, in Acts and, and some of the letters of the, the New Testament. Um, uh, some of us, some of us in, in some corners of the church like to say we need to get back to the, the New Testament church. But I tell you, you read through letters like Corinthians, you read through um, the, the disputes between Paul and Peter and uh, the whole challenge of circumcision and other things. And I'll tell you, I don't necessarily want to go back there. Um, there's, there's a lot of really great things about the, the very early primitive church, but there's a lot of really rough things. And we don't necessarily need to go back. We need to contextualize what, uh, what God is doing in the world today, right? Okay, so just a little, um, I'll get off my soapbox. All right. <clears throat> okay, so the church has this commission to do and obey everything that Jesus commanded. We're, we're, we're doing the practical outworking uh, of that through the teaching of his disciples and, and specifically of Paul. Um, and this work that we're doing as the church is primarily the work of restoration. We've picked up where Jesus left off where he really basically revolutionized and got everything back on track. We're now moving uh, the train, I guess, on that track forward, right? And that's the work of the church. And the, then the next thing after Jesus, we have this long period of, of church history, and uh, we don't know where we land on that line. We don't know when Jesus returns, but we have this expectation of the return of Jesus, and so in the time now that we're here, we have this idea that, that the, the reign of God, the rule of God is here, but not fully here, right? Um, so when Jesus returns, um, this idea of all things, including humanity, will finally be restored into perfect relationship with God. That's the, that's the end. That's the, the final picture. In the time between Jesus and that, we have to work out what that looks like. And we have to work towards that picture of restoration. That's what our call is as the church, as people who follow after God. Um, there's uh, there's this, this theme of creation throughout this whole narrative of, of creation being perfect, of creation being marred because of, of some poor decisions by humanity. 
and, and then of, of God working to restore humanity and hence all of his creation. There's that theme. And it's this meta story that, that all other stories that we're familiar with in all the scriptures, it's that meta story that they all fall under, right? And, uh, you know, I heard somebody say this once. It's, it's sort of like a play. Um, you know, you picture this five-part act. Picture this. Okay, some people are in London. I'm making this up. Some people are in London, and um, I'm going to get off this chair. Um, and they are they're uncovering this old building. And they knock down this wall, and there's this room there that um, just all these this paperwork. It turns out it was one of Shakespeare's uh, uh, workrooms, right? And there's all these papers, and they find this, this old play that's never been published. And they find uh, it's a five-act play. They find everything. They find four the first four acts, and they find the the the, the last scene of the of the of Act Five. But the remainder of, of Act Five is missing. They don't know where it is. Can't find it. So as you can probably imagine, they publish that, and um, all these uh, these Shakespearean experts out there get their hands on this 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 play, and they get to work trying to figure out what would that what would the rest of Act Five look like. You know what. What would take us from the end of Act 4 up to the end as we know it of Act 5? What would that look like? And so people who know Shakespeare, they know the way he writes, they know the way he thinks, they'd be working their tails off trying to figure out what does that look like. And you'd have probably a variety of versions out there of what that story looks like from various you know, playwrights today. <clears throat> but essentially you'd have a similar storyline connecting the end of Act 4 to the end of Act 5, right? And that's the same thing that we do as the church today. We, we find ourselves in a time where, where Act 1, say that's creation. Act 2 is, is uh, maybe the fall to the first covenant. <coughs> Act 3 is the covenant with Abraham up to Jesus. And you have the exile. And that's a very meaty, um, very, very meaty act. It's the, the big one. And then Act 4 is Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus. And Act 5 we actually have some of the beginning of it from the New Testament writings, um, but we have the end as well from books like Revelation, Daniel, other prophetic writings. Um, but we have to figure out what that middle part is of Act 5. And that is the, the purpose and the job and the, the task of the church. And, and that is when I think about what we are, the vineyard, that is, that is our job. We want to be a, a, a church, a community that is, that is a restoration community. Um, we want to find ourselves... Um, building a community that's both that's both restoring people at the individual level, but is also uh, 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 reflecting God's image at a community level, and, and then beyond that, that is doing the work of of restoring His creation at the larger level. Whether that's getting involved in the environment, whether that's caring for the poor, whether that's introducing people to 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 God in the first place, we want to be a community, the vineyard, that that is that is considered a restoration people. And we know, we know that that people in the future are going to walk into Vineyard and say, "Oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is sort of a, a worship-centered church, right?" Or we know people are going to walk in and say, "Yeah, this this church is really focused on small groups, right?" Uh, or they may say, "Well, they they've got really great food. That seems to be their thing." Um, yeah, great food. Um, but in reality, what we hope and, and what we desire and what we long for is that people are going to people are going to walk in. 
And uh, maybe after they get past some of those maybe surface observations, they're going to see that we are primarily a church that is about being restoration people, that we get up off our rear ends and we restore the image of, image of God in our own lives, in the life of this community, in the life of, of Charlottesville, and the life of the world. That's what we want to be. So we have the task, and, and this is something that, that I'm going to spend the next few weeks going over, because, because I have some ideas that, that come from Scripture of what that looks like, what it looks like to be uh, a, a, an ima- a, a person restored to the image of God, a community restored to the image of God, and, and to be people that go out and do the work of restoration in the world. Um, that's what we're going to focus on in, this, in the rest of this series. But that is what's on my heart. That's what my passion is for the Charlottesville Vineyard is to be a restoration people. And we have the, the hard task, and it's not, it's not just me, it's not the pastoral leadership, it's, it's all of us that figure out together what it looks like. What is Act 5? What is, that, what, is Act, what is the rest of Act 5? What does the rest of that Shakespearean play look like? How do we work that out in such a way that it really does probably get back to about what God intended, right? About what that, that, that master playwright intended. And that's essentially what we want to be. And that's, that's again, what we'll cover. We want to be a restoration people.